evening, everybody. Good evening. Um, it's my huge pleasure as Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences to uh, chair this evening. Um, it's wonderful doing these inaugural lectures because we get the benefit of the expertise of our wonderful professors here um, expressed in a way which is accessible hopefully to everyone. It's my great pleasure tonight to introduce Professor Maxine Molliner who is director of the Institute of the Americas, a fairly recent addition to UCL and a great department to have on board now. Uh, she will be first of all introduced by Professor Nicola Miller from the History Department, who is Professor of Latin American Studies. And after Maxine's lecture, the vote of thanks will be given by Professor Denise now if I'll Candiotti from SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. My apologies, I tried to get your surname right. But, um, after that, everyone is cordially invited to a reception downstairs in the garden room to continue to discuss and celebrate this evening's lecture. So over to you, Nicola. Well, it's both an honor and a very great pleasure to introduce Maxine this evening. Most of you will already know her, of course, but I think it's likely that many of you will have seen her mainly in just one of her many roles. Distinguished sociologist, sought-after public policy advisor, inspiring teacher, or academic leader. You may not all be aware of the sheer range of things that Maxine does. Moving in the space of a few weeks from publishing a research paper on women's rights to leading a workshop at a think tank such as the Overseas Development Institute, to advising the Labour Party on inequality, or even briefing William Hague about Latin America. This ability to bridge the academic and policy divide is one of the most remarkable features of Maxine's career. Equally striking, I think, is the diversity of her international connections, which are not only throughout Latin America, but also in the United States, continental Europe, China, Africa, and the Middle East. And many of these go beyond academic links to include policymakers and people in NGOs. She's also contributed, of course, a great deal in terms of academic leadership, notably as founder of the Human Rights Consortium at the School of Advanced Study, and of course, since 2008, as director of the Institute of the for the Study of the Americas, now the Institute of the Americas here at UCL. It takes unusually strong personal qualities to sustain all of this, and among many, those that have stood out to me over the last few years are Maxine's great generosity of spirit, her tireless commitment to what she believes in, and a steely determination to pursue her aims and to keep optimistic in the face of obstacles. All these lie behind her many achievements in both the academic and the policy worlds. Maxine began her academic life in the celebrated sociology department at Essex, where she did her BA and PhD, after which she was a lecturer there for 16 years. In 1992, she moved to Birkbeck College in London, where she taught for two years before going to the Institute of Latin American Studies, 
where she became Professor of Sociology in 2000. During these years and beyond, she researched and published widely on the sociology of development, especially on questions of social policy and human rights, notably women's rights. And it's no coincidence, given the person that she is, that a good deal of her academic work has been collaborative. With characteristic generosity, she's welcomed new colleagues into fields which she played a major role in shaping, working with them on conference panels and workshops, edited books, and special issues of journals. And the result has been an extensive body of research, including the standard reference points for debates about gender politics, about citizenship, social justice, and poverty, not only in Latin America, but also in parts of Africa and the Middle East. And if any single phrase could capture the ethos that has informed all this work, perhaps it's the title of her recent piece in The Guardian, some of you may have seen, which was, listen to poor people, don't just hand out the cash. Sustaining the case that resources have limited value if they are distributed without respect for the recipients or sensitivity to local context has been central, I think, to her contribution to the field. Now, this evening we celebrate not only Maxine's personal inauguration as Professor of Sociology at UCL, but also the inauguration of the Institute of the Americas, which to our very great pleasure she brought to UCL in 2012. The Institute has a long established commitment to combining outstanding academic work with public advocacy and policy advice. Its role is to explore connections and comparisons both within the whole of the Americas and beyond, understanding the Americas in the world, not apart from it, as can happen in area studies. In sum, Maxine's career in itself is a perfect illustration of the values and the purpose of the institute that she so ably directs. And you can hear all of this in the very title of the inaugural lecture that I'm now delighted to invite her to give. We've got it on the board. Transnational Americans, a Latin American perspective. Well, thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Mary, for those very kind words. And it is a great honor for me uh, tonight to be in the position to be giving my inaugural here at UCL and to have had the opportunity to serve as director of the new Institute of the Americas, now in its second year and flourishing thanks to the tremendous efforts of all my excellent colleagues at the Institute and the support from many other people here at UCL. I wanted this lecture to be an inaugural as much for the Institute as for myself, which explains the choice of topic, as Nicholas so rightly pointed out. I've worked on migration in the past, but this lecture was an opportunity to update myself on current developments in the region. But more than that, it seemed fitting to choose a theme that paid tribute to the America's wide remit of the Institute. Migration exemplifies the value of thinking beyond the nation state to examine the transnational linkages at play across and within the hemisphere. But while migration is quintessentially transnational and global, we need to appreciate the contextual specificities of particular flows and their dynamics. This is where area studies can provide vital insights and knowledge. 
Second aim of this lecture is to shift the optic on migration in the Americas away from what sociologist Michael Burroway called the hegemonic parochialism that still governs much US scholarship. Here I join the efforts of Latin Americanists and others who try to decenter that dominant bias to look more closely at what we can learn from a focus on the South. As far as migration studies are concerned, Latin America has only recently emerged from a relative neglect by almost all but area specialists and some scholars within the region. This is all the more striking given the richness of scholarship on migration in the US, much of it on Hispanics and much of it carried out by Latin American expatriates. Think only of such major figures as Alejandro Portes of Cuban extraction, Argentine Marcelo Suarez Orozco. Language and a paucity of reliable and comparable national statistics contributed to this relative neglect, but happily in recent years it's being remedied by a veritable avalanche of new scholarship, both regional and international. And comparative work is now greatly assisted since 2009 by a regional effort by the OAS to improve the collection and reliability of national statistics through SICREMI, which is a continuous collection of data on migration in the Americas, and that work is still in progress. A third aim of this lecture is to give a broad picture of Latin American migration to illustrate how diverse and changing are its regional flows, as are their causes and consequences. Beyond the indisputable fact that people usually migrate in the hope of improving their lives and those they care for, and predictably move from poorer to richer regions, it's facile to reduce migration to one cause. There's no one reason why people migrate, no necessary consistency across historical time in the character of migra migrant flows. That said, there are some patterned regularities. If migrants are not best understood as the freely choosing subjects of neoclassical liberalism, nor is migration to be reduced to the inexorable determinants of structural theories. Migrants' choices take place within their own calculus of constraints and opportunities, the patterns of which may be seen through in-depth scholarly inquiry. That inquiry might best be done through interdisciplinary research. Migration is an object of study that benefits from cross-disciplinarity. History casts light on old and new flows shaped by colonialism, imperialism and affinities of culture and language. Economics shows the global inequalities and skewed labor markets that direct migration flows. Politics reveals the role of states and law in limiting or easing migration. And sociology and anthropology reveal the social contingencies, how networks and families are involved in creating, shaping and sustaining migrant flows. So through this interdisciplinary prism then, I hope to cast a little light on the particularities of migration in the Latin American region, with no pretensions to an exhaustive account, if such there ever could be. What I'm going to say then is organized in three main parts. I begin with a brief historical background to set the context and to draw out the contrasts with present migration trends. In the second part, I'll draw on the migrant flows, focusing on those and trying to show just how very different they have been 
in terms of the previous flows and the present show flows. And thirdly, I'll turn to look at some regional views of migration, hoping that there will be some time for that. So to history. Migration is a theme around which controversies have raged, and it's one that's also associated with many myths and iconic images, often contained within the master narratives of nations. One of these is that for the Americas, European migration from the 19th century was foundational. The great wave of migration from Europe that started in the early 19th century and continued through the 1920s sent some 50 million people to the New World, it is said, the majority to the United States. While not all stayed, of course, many did, and the US still claims to be the country with the largest number of foreign-borns in the world, and it is still the country to which more than 60% of the world's population say they would like to go today. But if European migration was in any sense foundational in the US, in Latin America it had a more symbolic character as a foundational myth. Here it was less the numbers of migrants that the region received than the importance attached to it by political elites that was foundational. This importance inhered in the name given to most of the Southern Hemisphere in the mid-19th century, Latin America, the Latin expressing an aspiration that the region would be European, Catholic, and white. In a variety of images and metaphors, industrious Europeans would come to awaken the sleeping beauty of the new world and write civilization on an otherwise blank canvas. Empty deserts would be conquered and cultivated Factories and cities would be built by free men from Europe. It was only later that some intellectuals began to recognize the value of indigenous peoples and cultures and talk of mestizo nations, but even this still erased the history of the millions of Africans who had labored as slaves to produce the riches of the plantation economies of the region. History, too, was for a while whitened. Latin American aspirations to be more European, however, were not entirely misplaced. While the principal flows of the European migrations went to the US, a significant number of Europeans also made it to Latin America. So too did indentured labor, laborers from China and Japan and traders from the regions that made up the Ottoman Empire, among many others. In the main receiving countries of the European wave in both North and South, it's no exaggeration to say that international migration was, if not foundational, it was nonetheless an important contributing factor shaping the culture and character of the populations. Immigrants influenced patterns of taste, popular foods, and established uh, an enduring number of institutions. The impact of the first wave of migration on the Americas was also felt in the political evolution of the countries affected. European immigrants brought socialism and anarchism and other radical currents. And in Latin America, the origins of the first welfare states and the Southern Cone can be traced directly to cultural and political influences from Europe. While the cities of New York, Buenos Aires, Santiago, Rio, among others, are all unimaginable without the imprint of the diverse populations that con contributed to making them, mass migration was not continental in reach. There's not only a clear north-south divide 
with a great majority going to the US. But there was another equally important divide within Latin America between those few countries that received large numbers of migrants and the many that did not. This double divergence between North and South and within the South goes back as far as the 1820s and reflects the different fortunes and development trajectories of each hemisphere and that between the rich and poor countries within the South. And these divisions were to become more marked in the century that followed. In Latin America, the first wave of mass migration brought an estimated 13 million migrants, mainly from Europe, to five principal destinations. I want to show you this first. Argentina received by far the greatest number of almost 7 million, of whom almost 4 million remained. Argentina's per capita income was 30% higher than Spain's and Italy's in 1913. From the 1860s, Argentina actively recruited migrants from Spain and Italy with the promise of work and cheap land. And to this day, Argentina's constitution of 1857 still instructs governments to look to Europe for its additional population needs, even though the majority of its migrants now are from Paraguay and Bolivia. Although Canada was the other important country of destination in the Americas, it's interesting to note that between 1890 and 1900, Argentina and Brazil each attracted a greater share of immigrants to the Americas than did Canada. Though, of course, Canada surged ahead in the 20th and 21st centuries to become a major recipient of migrants from around the world. And today, 20% of its population is foreign-born. So to sum up the main points, about this first wave. First of all, for Latin America, the numbers were not that great. Second, they went to a limited number of countries, concentrated in the more economically prosperous zones, the temperate southern cone, as I've said, but also Brazil and Cuba. Thirdly, governments were racially selective, as in the US. The migration flows were predominantly white, except where indentured labor was involved. And fourthly, they were predominantly masculine. Less than a quarter comprised women. That first great wave of migration to the Americas virtually halted in the recession of the 1930s and during the World War, but soon from the, 18, from the 1940s, an ever-growing population left the rural hinterlands and changed the demographic character of Latin American cities making their own, perhaps even more lasting impact on the character of the subcontinent. Here in Argentina, we see one of the political consequences in the electoral victory of Juan Domingo Perón in 1946. But as this internal migration was gathering pace, another great international migration was underway, affecting the Americas, the so-called second wave, or the new immigration, as Suarez Orozco, among others, calls it. They date the onset of this wave of international migration from the mid-1960s. This flow, moderate at first, accelerated from the 1980s to achieve its greatest numbers in the 2000s. This second wave shared two features with the first, the sheer scale of the movement of people and the principal direction of it to the US. During the second wave, 
From the mid-80s to the present, the US received a larger influx of immigration than during any period except the early decades of the 20th century. The similarities between the two waves end there. The differences with the first wave are far more striking. First of all, while the first wave was predominantly intercontinental in migration to the Americas, the second international wave was largely intracontinental, i.e. within the Americas. Second, in terms of numbers, it was predominantly south to north and predominantly out-migration from Latin America. In effect, Latin America becomes a labor-exporting region. Third characteristic is the dominance within the south-north flow of Mexican migrants to the US. And fourth, starting in the mid-80s and peaking in the early 2000s, we see a second south-north flow this time to Europe. Fifth and finally, since around 2000, we see new developments and even greater diversification of destination for Latin American migrants with new flows of different types, an increase in migration within Latin America itself and a slight rise in extracontinental migration to Latin America with new flows coming from Europe, China, Africa, Asia, even Canada. During this whole period, however, emigration from Latin American countries is a dominant feature with predictable causes. From the 1970s, the region was entering difficult times. <clears throat> Political repression, a wave of military dictatorships sent many professionals into exile abroad. The debt crisis of the 1980s, the harsh stabilization and structural adjustment policies that followed sent many more Latin Americans into poverty. This was followed by 30 years of low growth and for most stagnant incomes. If this was not enough to swell the numbers of migrants, in some countries prolonged armed conflict fed by the remnants of the Cold War and later turning to the new criminal violence associated with the drugs trade were additional contributing factors. At this time too, globalization and the policies that supported it generated demand abroad for cheap, relatively unskilled, flexible Latin American labor, much of it destined to experience adverse forms of incorporation into the borderlands of the global capitalist economy. Latin America is still a region of significant out-migration. The latest statistics published in 2012 show that around half of the countries of Latin America are significantly affected by emigration. CICREMI, which is the, um, the statistical gathering agency that I mentioned before, categorizes the countries of mass emigration as those where 10% or more of the national population resides abroad. Here we can include Mexico, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Ecuador, and if considered Latin American, Puerto Rico. And in a second category of high emigration, where citizens abroad make up between 7 and under 10% of the country's population, we have Colombia, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and Peru. The rest are under 5%. So let me just provide a little detail under these headings. 
this slide shows that of the 20 million or so people from the Latin America and the Caribbean region, 12 million are represented by Mexicans going to the US. Despite a long history of Mexico being treated as the US's reserve army of labor, going back even before the Bracero, the sort of gastarbeiter policy started in the 1930s, mass migration from Mexico to the United States is a fairly recent phenomenon. The Mexican flow grew in the 1970s and kept growing in the 1980s and 90s. And in 2000, the peak year, more than 750,000 Mexicans crossed the border, many illegally. Today, immigration controls try to contain these flows with thousands repatriated. Some figures in 1913 only, of course, to try even more dangerous crossings, sometimes resulting in up to 300 deaths a year, mostly on the Sonora Desert. Now, what you see here is part of the demographic revolution taking place in the US as a result of migration. In 1945, 2.5% of the US population was Hispanic, and 87% was white. Today, the Hispanic population is 53 million, or 17% of the total population, 65% which are of Mexican origin. The Hispanic population is growing as much today from natural increase as from immigration, and by 2060, it's projected that 31% of the US population will be of Hispanic descent. In the 2012 US election, they accounted for 10% of the vote, and this figure is projected to at least to double by 2030, since there are one in four children uh, who are in, categorized as Hispanic. It is not for nothing that the lively Chicano movement in the US sees Latino migration as retrieving by settlement the southwestern territories lost in the Mexican session of, 18, of the 1840s. Strong though the Mexican migrant flows have been, there are signs that it has been leveling off slightly in the last few years, partly due to the US recession, partly due to better Mexican growth, both of which have led to a slight increase in return migration, but far less than predicted. However, the next group of low-skilled migrants to the US is coming from countries other than Mexico, especially those in Central America, many of whom are illegal as shown here, traveling on the notorious train called La Bestia, the Beast, which has been a focus for kidnapping and extortion for narco gangs, and much worse besides. As a result of this Central American migration, Mexico has become a country of transit today, with substantial numbers passing through it in the hope of reaching the United States. The other significant but far smaller and more recent flow from the Americas has been to Europe. If you look at the right-hand pie chart, you can see that Spain uh, is, uh, this is important part of, uh, uh, of, of what we have to understand here, is that the, most, of the, most of the migrants to Europe are coming from the Andean region. I think that is the key point in this particular slide. But most of them have gone to Spain, some of them have gone to Italy, and some to other OECD countries, Portugal, Germany, France, Sweden, in that order. And of course, also to the UK, an estimated 186,000 uh, Latin Americans in 
the UK, most of whom are, of course, in London. This underscores the broadening of Latin American international migration away from the United States to new streams, including beyond Europe, to Canada, to Australia, to Japan, as well as to other countries in Latin America itself. Most of these migrants to Europe, uh, as you see, have a very different origin from those going to the US. And as we see here, they come from the Andean region, a lot of them from Colombia, a lot of them from Bolivia. And uh, in the US, of course, it's from Central America. Spain has received the majority of Latin Americans bound for Europe, uh, around 2, two to 2.5 million. They make up about one third of the foreign-born population. Reasons of language, religion, and history shape the main destination preferences, but also state policy. Argentines can claim Italian citizenship, and Spain has had preferential immigration legislation with respect to Ecuador. It had a visa waiver until 2003, and in 2001, 25,000 unauthorized Ecuadorians were regularized, and in 2004, 400,000 were granted citizenship. Turning to in-region cross-border migration, now a focus on south-north intercontinental migration has dominated much of the mainstream scholarship on Latin American migrant flows. Less studied, at least outside the region, is international migration within the subcontinent, which accounts for around half of the total out-migration from Latin American and Caribbean countries. In recent years, there's been a decline in migration to destinations within Latin America, despite the improved economic situation, which suggests that what is happening in the sending countries is the major driver of this kind of migration. This slide shows that apart from the US and Canada, the countries with the largest proportion of migrants are found in a few relatively prosperous, relatively stable countries. The principal receiving countries of permanent and temporary in-migration, in-region migration are Argentina, Chile, Costa Rica, and for different reasons, Ecuador and Colombia. This slide breaks it down into permanent and temporary migration, which highlights the countries that receive large numbers from neighboring states, usually on a temporary basis, often with agreements, bipartisan agreements, showing that you can have circular migration, uh, also Ecuador, Argentina are cases in point. And this slide shows also the importance of migration from neighboring states. Ecuador, Costa Rica both have very high numbers of migrants coming in from next door for different reasons. Colombia, of course, major case of uh, violence for many, many decades, and Nicaragua because, largely because of its uh, very low um, development record, very poor development record. And here, in this slide of three countries, we can see how differently affected countries are by different migratory patterns. This also highlights the countries that are attracting international migration. Look at Brazil, for example. Brazil's profile shows us how diverse are the origins of migrants today and indicates a relatively new flow into the region represented by what's called extracontinentals, extracontinentales, which from 2008, though small, quadrupled in number. 
there are some Senegalese in Argentina, which I'm told there are 10,000. Some of these migrants are transit migrants on their way to somewhere else. Others are refugees. Latin America has a tradition of hospitality to refugees. At its peak, Ecuador took in 150,000 Colombians, Venezuela 200,000, and Brazil has offered 50,000 Congolese citizenship rights. I don't know how many have taken that offer up. Perhaps Leslie will tell me later. What are the characteristics of Latin American immigrants? There are essentially three. This slide shows that the north-south divide between migration flows needs to be further broken down to reveal the segmentation of migrant flows by skill level. Latin America exports a proportion of highly skilled professionals, and the data shows that these tend to go to the US on the whole, while those going to Europe are more representative of the outflows as a whole, viz. most of them are unskilled. Indeed, on some calculations, 30% are unskilled and over 40% uh, have skills that are among the least qualified skill categories. And the numbers of those completing secondary school are often quite low, as in the case of Ecuador. This educational data is entirely consistent with the region's underinvestment in human capital in Latin America. We can also see that we look at this slide, it's a little bit hard for some of you to see, but it just basically shows that um, what is sometimes called the feminization of migrant flows has been taking place as more women leave, leave their countries of origin, either through family re reunification or alone. Um, and roughly now, uh, roughly equal numbers of men and women um, are migrating from the Latin American region. 40% of women leave their children behind, uh, very well, this is true of about four countries at least, and um, they do tend to set up what is called female care chains to substitute for them, usually using grandmothers and other relatives. Most women migrants are destined for the highly gendered and highly racialized labor markets of the north or in neighboring countries, for example, the case of Peruvians in Chile, where they work as domestics or in the care economy, looking after children, or in Europe, caring for the growing proportion of elderly. The evidence also shows that recently, indigenous communities in Mexico and Ecuador have seen quite high levels of female and male emigration to destinations abroad. In the time that remains, and with this general picture of Latin American migration in mind, I'll just move on to my last section briefly in which I'll make a few quick points about regional perspectives on migration. These can be grouped together under three broad headings, economic, governmental, and social. At a continental level, Latin American economic think tanks and development agencies generally recognize that while it brings some benefits, the costs of migration are high. In recent years, much of this debate has been formulated as a critique of governments uh, a critique, sorry, of previous development policies. And since left-leaning governments came to power in the region in the last decades, states have become more developmental and efforts have been made to address poverty and inequality, though job creation is still a very significant challenge. Left 
critics point to migration's usefulness as a political escape valve, exporting discontent and surplus labor and allowing poor and poorly governed countries to survive on the basis of remittances. And at the social level, migration is blamed for a host of ills, lack of social cohesion, crime, gangs, broken families, the broken society. Here, we see a quote from Rafael Correa, the 21st century socialist president of Ecuador, who sums up his view of migration as the expression of a failed neoliberal development model that expels from the country millions of Ecuadorians. He has uh, also, interestingly enough, promoted um, the return of migrants and has also promoted the political participation of migrants through the vote and arranged for their interests to be represented in the National Assembly. Other governments of troubled sending countries are far less proactive and much more ambivalent about out-migration, some often actively or tacitly promoting it. A factor in government support of emigration is undoubtedly the sizable revenues generated by remittances. These began to grow in volume in the 1980s, and although they fell in the 2008-09 crisis, they have recuperated very well after that. Here you can see that for countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, migrant remittances make a valued and for some a decisive contribution to their national economies, as well as to receiving households. And in addition to supporting their incomes, they can provide a kind of retirement fund for poor families, uh, often in the form of houses sometimes described as migrant pensions. The importance of migrants abroad to their home states has also grown. Some globalization theorists who rapidly wrote off the state in emphasizing the new borderless world and the minimal state, governments clearly play a vital and growing role in encouraging or discouraging migration. Transnationalism is actively fostered by Latin American states. Most countries now offer dual citizenship to their nationals living abroad, albeit with variations in the conditions attached, such as whether they're allowed to vote or not in elections. As a result, migrants are increasingly involved in overlapping political memberships and citizenship rights and practices. And even for those settled abroad, talk of straight line assimilation into the host country has long been replaced by what Portes calls a more segmented process of hybrid identities and political allegiances. For all these reasons, states are both more aware of and more wary of diasporas, which can become important politically. In recent years, immigration policies in Latin America have been mostly liberal and humanitarian. And a few countries, Ecuador and Argentina, for example, have had exceptionally liberal policies. Liberal regional policies can be explained by several factors. One, the relatively low levels of migration to most countries of Latin America, although even this has to be qualified because the two relatively high receiving countries, Ecuador and Argentina, have both sustained open door policies, albeit with some recent shifts on the part of Ecuador in particular. Secondly, political capital. 
Latin American states have sought to distance themselves from US and European policies that restrict migration, and some make significant political capital out of critiquing them. It's often uh, frontlined in the newspapers that some issue around migrants being expelling from Spain or wherever. Thirdly, and most important, however, <clears throat> are the numerous regional trade and bilateral agreements which have encouraged cross-border migration. Mercosur, UNASUR, the Andean Community, Central America CA4 program, the Pacific Alliance, all have migration agreements embedded within them. And it's interesting here because you can see in this slide, if you look at the gray bar, the proportion of migration that's accounted for these agreements is quite high in some countries. And this doesn't include them all, of course, but if you see Argentina has, for example, um, bilateral agreements with Bolivia to allow circular migration and others, and these impact on the very nature of migration itself. Latin American states have also embedded humanitarian law in their state-to-state -state agreements, according migrants the same rights to health and education as nationals, and in theory, citizenship is also attainable, though on the ground there are reports of obstruction and long delays in practice. Although receiving states' attitudes in Latin America are still liberal with regard to migration, there are signs of growing anti-migrant sentiment in recent years in response to the size of some immigrant and refugee populations. But the countries with restricted policies are few. Puerto Rico, because it falls under the laws of the US, Mexico, which now requires visas for most Latin Americans, Costa Rica, which seeks mainly to control undocumented migration from Nicaragua and Panama, but generally permits the free entry of other Latin Americans. But there is at the same time a new embrace, at least among young people and intellectuals, of the themes of diversity and older migrant themes and streams previously hidden through earlier assimilationist culture are being rediscovered. Rediscovered identity movements are on the increase. For example, the story of the migrants from the Middle East, from Syria, the Lebanon and Palestine is being revealed in literature and social history and even in political life. There have been demonstrations of descendants of, Palestines, of Palestinians marching against Israel's policies in Gaza, in Argentina, Chile and elsewhere. Conversion to Islam by Latin Americans of Muslim origin, a revival of Quran reading, and a rise in mosque building and attendance is reminiscent of similar developments in Spanish Andalus. So regional perspectives on migration are both different and changing. This is probably a good point to end on, and time is up. So I will just briefly conclude with a few summary points. First of all, Latin American migration flows in the second wave differ very markedly from the first and show continuing intercontinental and regional divergence in terms of migration patterns. Talk of Latin America's rise and the US's decline is somewhat premature. Second, Latin America's migration flows are significant, but with the exception of Mexico, not on the whole that large in scale. Third, in-region migration is important for Latin America, though not growing. Actually, it's declining in recent years. Fourth, we're seeing a growing diversification of Latin American migration of flows and destinations. Fifth, 
the US will continue as the principal migrant destination and migrant Latinas will have the largest impact there. Finally, despite recent efforts to stimulate growth, tackle poverty and other social deficits, some Latin American countries will continue to export their people for some time to come. We will be seeing more Latin Americans in London and as a consequence more salsa and tango bars, more Latin American cuisine, as well as more night cleaners from the Andes and Brazil and much more besides. Latin American states can do more to invest in their population's future than the, than the disincentives to remain at home will in time recede. Thank you very much. Dear Dean, colleagues, students, and friends, I remember quite distinctly the day some 32 years ago when a Latin Americanist colleague, Olivia Harris, who is no longer with us, sadly, turned to me and said quite categorically, the person you really need to meet is Maxine Molino. I was then an emigre scholar fresh from Turkey. This was an exciting time when a group of pioneering feminist scholars and activists working on the subordination of women project supported by the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex were pushing the boundaries of critical analysis in their respective disciplines and transforming the canon in the field of gender and development. I could glimpse even then that Maxine was not going to be a mere chronicler or analyst of the struggles of women's movements, but a participant in these struggles, someone who combined passions of the intellect with passions of the heart, giving us in the process a unique corpus of work, impressive in its analytical scope and acuity, broad in its comparative reach, and remarkable in its ability of never losing sight of the real-world implications of our intellectual endeavors. Although always firmly grounded in the study of Latin America, as demonstrating by numerous excellent works, including a wonderful collection edited with Liz Dore called The Hidden Histories of Gender and the State in Latin America, Maxine's earlier work on state socialism had taken her further afield to the Soviet bloc, Southern Arabia, and the Horn Afri of Africa in pursuit of what became a career-long engagement with analyzing the structural and political dimensions of gender inequality, as well as forms of collective action to oppose it. Her distinctive application of gender analysis to key issues in social theory, public policy, and development gave us a demonstration of how a strong analytic grounding in political sociology can be combined with deep and nuanced area-based knowledge of Latin America to produce new concepts and approaches that inform and indeed transform mainstream thinking. I shall inevitably have to start with 
mobilization without emancipation, women's interest, state and revolution in Nicaragua. One of the most cited, reprinted, translated, and debated interventions I have ever come across. Basing ourselves on an analysis of the tensions between feminism and socialism in Nicaragua, Maxine proposed the now classic distinction between women's interests and gender interests, further distinguishing between practical and strategic gender interests. Anyone with a glancing familiarity with debates in gender and development will know and be aware that an entire decade and more of development policy and practice drew upon these distinctions. When she chose to revisit this ground a decade later in another classic, Analyzing Women's Movements, she provided us with a lucid and widely utilized conceptualization of different forms of women's collective action and address the dangers of reductive approaches to the question of interests, uh, opting for an unambiguous focus on the politics involved in the articulation of women's diverse interests. Prefiguring the next phase of her work, she concluded that women's interests cannot ultimately be divorced from a general project of democracy and social justice. If Maxine's book titled Women's Movements in International Perspective wraps up a period of sustained reflection on state socialism and its limitations, her edited volume Gender, Justice, Rights and Development, the fruit of a research program she initiated at UNRIST, marks a transition to a rigorous examination of the tensions between feminism and liberalism and the challenges posed to equality and social justice within a liberal paradigm. In the aftermath of democratic transitions in Latin America and post-Soviet transition in East Central Europe and the Soviet Union, the initial revitalization of debates on rights and democracy was followed by the growing recognition of glaring deficits in social justice and deepening inequalities under a regime of neoliberal globalization. Maxine's lucid and critical voice cut through the contradictions of a perplexing international policy agenda, one that simultaneously pushed for the consolidation of a market-led model of development and at the same time put greater emphasis on democracy and rights, creating a context where formal advances in women's rights were constantly undercut by deteriorating social and economic conditions. Yet Maxine was never tempted by the facile and, dare I say, for a while a la mode option of treating the question of rights as a mere fig leaf for unpalatable uh, neoliberal policies or a Western imposition thrust upon reluctant southern populations. She held on to her conviction that you cannot lightly jettison the language of rights and citizenship, whose mobilizing power has become even more evident after the wave of popular protests that swept the globe in the opening decade of our century, a vindication of her position if one was needed. She took on instead the important task 
of subjecting the concepts that became common currency in the new development agenda to systematic critical scrutiny. Gender analysis in her hands became a forensic tool wielded masterfully to, to cut through the pretensions of development buzzwords such as social capital and the so-called new poverty agenda, revealing their conservative biases and their gender blindness. By now, of course, Maxine was fully engaged with the field of social policy and was doing analyses on the effects of conditional credit transfers, the dernier uh, cri in poverty reduction. If we ever needed an object lesson on the impact of research and the enabling potentials of gender analysis, we need look no further than Maxine's critique of the flagship anti-poverty program in Mexico, Progreso Oportunidades, which in her Mothers at the Service of the Nation, which has been widely published, circulated, and debated, most importantly in Latin America itself, leading to further research in three Andean countries, a continuing dialogue on social policy in Latin America, and the establishment of an international network on this theme. Clearly, there is more to follow. And judging by today's topic, Maxine is not about to hang up her academic boots, especially now that she can look forward to some well-earned freedom from managerial duties. I would like to conclude by giving thanks for what Maxine has given to us all, to her colleagues, her friends, and her students, and more personally, for a long life nourishing friendship, the sharing of joys and sorrows, and endless intellectual stimulation. Thank you, Maxine. One of the wonderful things about inaugurals is how much you learn. I've learned an enormous amount tonight from Maxine's lecture. I'm sure we all have. Um, one thing I have learned, in addition to the um, marvelous sets of statistics, quotations, pictures, analysis, inflows and outflows, the complexity of all, I've learned one further thing. There may be continuing subordination of women worldwide, and it may continue to be a problem, but I think here and now in this room with Maxine and with Nicola's lovely introduction, Denise's vote of thanks, I think we can safely say that this is a small haven where the subordination of women is not the case. So thank you again, Maxine, Nicola and Denise, for all your contributions tonight. And uh, we can continue the conversation, as said, downstairs in the reception in the garden room. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.